Please be seated. Our first scripture lesson this morning is drawn from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 18 through 25. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable if because of conscience towards God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture lesson this morning is drawn from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, beginning at verse 21 and extending to verse 39. Please stand for the reading of the Gospel. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved, and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. 
So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you, from his heart, does not forgive his brother his trespasses. The Gospel of our Lord. Praise be to you, O Christ. Please be seated. In the larger catechism, question 123 reads as follows. Which is the fifth commandment? The answer is, of course, the fifth commandment is, Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Now that would seem rather straightforward. And if you do read the larger catechism, you'll find that generally, as it makes its way through the Ten Commandments, you have a pattern where the question is, what is the commandment? The next one will be, what are the duties required in the commandment? And third, you'll have, what is to be avoided because of the commandment? And then you move on. It's generally three questions in the larger catechism dealing with each commandment, but not quite so with this one or the Sabbath commandment. In fact, with this commandment, questions run from 123 to 133, which is 11 questions and answers. So it may not be quite as straightforward as you might imagine. Let's read the next couple of questions and uh, hear what is actually entailed with the idea of honor your father and your mother. 124. Who are meant by father and mother in the fifth commandment? Answer, by father and mother in the fifth commandment are meant not only natural parents, now they are, the confession is not saying it doesn't include them, but not only natural parents, but all superiors in age and gifts, and especially such as by God's ordinance, are over us in place of authority whether in family, church, or commonwealth. So that's a little surprising. We weren't expecting that. When we hear honor your father and mother, we're thinking mom and dad. And the catechism now tells us, no, it has to do with all in authority. Question 125. Why are superiors styled father and mother? Answer. Superiors are styled father and mother both to teach them in all duties towards their inferiors, like natural parents, to express love and tenderness to them, according to their several relations, and to work inferiors to a greater willingness and cheerfulness in performing their duties to their superiors as to their parents. So now another question, and we see that mother and father has a certain content to it, if you're a superior, you should see yourself as a father or a mother, and that will lead you to certain duties, and those under you should view you that way, which will lead to their responses. Question 126. What is the general scope of the fifth commandment? Answer. The general scope of the fifth commandment is the performance of those duties which we mutually owe in our several relations as inferiors, superiors, or equals. And then the next several questions are according to the pattern I kind of 
already established, but it goes along with the idea of inferior, equal, and superior. What are the duties if you happen to be an inferior? What are the duties if you happen to be an equal? What are the duties if you happen to be a superior? And we run our way through the catechism and finally get to the next commandment. But the catechism writers said when you're told to honor your mother and father, that has to do with superiors in general. And if you have superiors and it deals with them, then you must also have equals and you must have inferiors. It is a logical consequence because you can't be told how to deal with superiors if they don't exist. You can't be called an inferior if you're not. And so the entire system of superiors, equals, and lessers is laid down in honor your father and mother and all those who are in authority over us all are in fact father and mother. When I was a candidate for ministry in the Presbyterian Church in America, the minister who was mentoring me to become a minister, when we got to this point in the catechism, looked at me and with kind of a superior smirk on his face, said, well, you don't really need to worry about this because this is effectively kind of an archaic political understanding. Yeah, it made its way into our confession, but we don't really believe that. Uh, it's, it's, it's very old-fashioned, so we'll just jump that. Well, my mentor was wrong in every sense of the word. If you look at biblical history and you look at where nations, and organizations of people come from, what you will see in history is that God created the first family. Had a dad, nobody else. God said, not good for a man to be alone. Created a wife who would be a mother. And so the first setup of humanity was family. And then as time rolls by, you'll watch the family become an extended family. Mom and dad have kids. They end up having their own kids. The family doesn't break at each particular nuclear unit, but you have an extended family. And the extended family gives birth to the clan, which is effectively another term for extended family, but at length. And the clan gives birth to the tribe. And ultimately, the tribe gives birth to the nation state. And where do the nations come from? Well, they come from families. Ultimately, that's what the Bible says. And the Bible does seem to bring the understanding of honor your father and mother to the leaders of your nation because they are, in fact, fathers of the nation. I mean, you can read the Old Testament where no. inferiors will talk to superiors and say, oh, my father, oh, my father, please listen to me. And they're using this very understanding that this is an extended family so uh, the catechism is right, and if the catechism is right, then as Christians, we are committed to understanding that human beings are not all equal in authority. Now, as Americans, we don't like that. that God calls men to forgiveness, especially forgiveness of their brothers. The family is a sacred bond you're supposed to forgive your brothers, 
You're not supposed to get into a prideful argument between tribes and end up killing 42,000 of the other tribe because you've been offended, like we saw this morning in Bible study. You're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to forgive. And Peter considers this calling, and he turns to his Lord, and he wants just a little clarification on this calling that God has given to him that he doesn't really want to do. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me? And I forgive him. Okay, he's being a jerk to me. I don't like this. Do I got to put up with this perpetually? How about seven times, Lord? I mean, doesn't that seem, doesn't that seem very generous of me? But surely there's a limit. And, of course, Jesus responds very famously with, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Which is a huge amount, and the truth is you'll lose count before you actually get there, because that's a long way away. So Peter represents all of us. We're not really crazy about forgiving. And our Lord looks at Peter and gives him a parable, which is a very famous parable, about a servant who is effectively a manager who is forgiven, but he himself won't forgive the other servant who is under him. And you will notice again the language of greater, equal, and lesser. The manager servant is under his Lord, but he is over the other servant. And we receive this very heartwarming uh, parable where the, the king obviously represents God, and the king has forgiven the manager servant a debt that is far larger than most of us actually recognize. Jesus says this manager owes his king 10,000 talents. And so we think, okay, that's a large number. He has a very big debt. But the original hearers, including the Apostle Peter, would have giggled hysterically because in the entire human world at the time of Christ's life, 10,000 talents actually represented more wealth than the entire human race possessed. And so it would be like me telling a story about how one time I found I was in Hawk, I had to pay for bars. And, you know, you giggle because that's, that's an astronomical debt. Nobody, owe, nobody owes a planet. But this servant did. The debt was beyond what anybody could imagine. And when the king is going to sell him off to, quote, pay the debt, it's not going to even put a slight dent in it. I mean, it's nothing. But the servant begs, please give me time. I'll make it good, which, again, the original hearers know he's not going to make it good. He can't get more wealth than exists. But the king is willing to forgive him. He is willing to write off 10,000 talents, so the king is not going to have them. He is going to eat the loss. There's going to be pain. But the king is merciful, and he writes off the debt. And then the manager servant turns to the other servant and won't write off a hundred denarii, and it's clear he's totally not grateful for the forgiveness that the king has given. He uh, demands what is his. He's not going to eat the hundred denarii, and so he throws the guy in prison, and the 
original hearers know this is just terribly unjust. He shouldn't have behaved that way. I mean, after all, the king forgave him such a great debt. How could he not forgive such a paltry debt, right? A hundred denarii. That's just paltry. That's nothing compared to 10,000 talents. How could he not eat that and pay the price if, if his master wrote off more wealth than humanity has? I mean, that's, that's the way this is preached, right, usually? It's not wrong. It is kind of Jesus's main point. But the original hearers would not have taken it quite the way we tend to take it. A hundred denarii, that's nothing, right? Well, it depends. How valuable is a denarii? When, when you go to the marketplace, when you go to the Agora, and you're spending denarii, how much are you spending? What, what is the wealth quotient of a denarii? Does anyone know? A denarii was an average day's pay for a person who wasn't poor. If you worked a good solid work day, and you weren't a serf, you weren't a slave, you were a common man, you earned a denarii. Another day, another denarii. So the servant who owes the manager owes him a hundred days worth of pay. A year is 365 days. So it's not quite a, quite a third of a year. But how many of you would be willing to say, look, you know, it's only a fourth of the year. I'm going to go without money. So I'll just eat this. It's not that big of a deal. I'll just go, what is a fourth of it? Three months. I'll just go three months without making a cent. Does that just roll naturally off your tongue? Three months without a penny. The original hearers would have realized this is something he's going to eat. There's going to be a major cost to writing this off. Now, it's not the cost of the entire universe, but it's still pretty significant. And so the fact that he's not willing to write it off is not as strange as we might first think. There's going to be payment made in the form of, he's going to take the debt of the other guy. He's going to eat it. Um, the manager is not a lesser in the second case. In the first case, you have a greater, he's the king, and the lesser owes him a debt, and the greater forgives the lesser there. But in this case, he's now the greater, and the one who owes him is the lesser, or at least the equal, and he's not going to forgive, but he doesn't have to. Because when you have greater, equal, and lesser, you have equations of power there, don't you? I mean, the greater is greater because he's more powerful. The equal is equal to you in power, and the lesser is at disadvantage. So uh, when he was just the lesser in debt, the only way he could affect his master is to beg. He has no power to bring to bear on the king. 
But when his lesser needs forgiving, when his lesser has wronged him and he has to be willing to be wronged, he does have power in his hand to say, I'm not going to do that. It really kind of makes you wonder what it would have been like if the roles had been reversed. What if the manager had a debt coming from the king of 10,000 talents, which, you know, what would he have done if he were the king's servant? Would he have forgiven him if the king asked? I expect the answer is yes, because what else is he going to do? The king says, you know, that 10,000 talents that, oh, yeah, I'm not going to give it to you. By the way, I have an army, I have an estate, I have a castle, I have a war horse, and you have nothing. But I'm not going to pay you anything. So what does the servant do? The servant goes, okay. The power is shifted. But when the servant does have power... The servant won't forgive because he doesn't have to. He has the power in his hands to make it right according to him to get what he deserves. And since power is in his hands, as he relates to this inferior, he doesn't forgive him because he doesn't have to. He has the ability to beat the guy up and lock him up. And that's what happens. Is it easier to forgive a greater or a lesser? We relate to people on these levels. Uh, I would think that it may be harder to forgive a lesser. Because again, what are you going to do if it's a greater? You can't make them do what you want. So forgiveness is sort of like, well, is there a change in anything? So I guess I'll forgive you. What will happen with a greater, if you have to forgive them, is you will wrestle with the issue of bitterness. Scripturally, bitterness is a sin. If you go to the book of Hebrews, the writer there says Hebrew it says bitterness is a sin that will come out of the heart and will poison many. Uh, bitterness is not just you were wrong. The wrong takes root in your heart, and now you become a sinner, and you're harming others. That's what your temptation is going to be if you have to forgive a great bitterness. And last week, I painted the trial of Jesus effectively in terms of a greater sinning against Christ, who is the lesser, and Christ forgives the greater. And there's a reason for that. Peter is using the trial to show us what happens in persecution and is calling us to forgive our persecutors. That does seem to be Peter's goal. You know, uh, they're, they're going to beat you up, take your stuff because you belong to Christ. You need to emulate Christ and forgive them. But is Jesus the Christ really the lesser that night? Certainly Pilate would have thought so. Certainly King Herod would have thought so. 
they thought they were sitting in trial over their subject, that they have the power and that he is at their mercy. But anyone who has read the Bible knows that's not what's really happening that night. They don't know it, but they are the lessers sitting in judgment of the greater and sinning against him. He is God the Son. He can call, in his own words, 12 legions of angels at any moment to do anything he wants them to do. So that night when he is reviled and mocked and they, they put thorns on his head, they don't know it, but they're sinning against one who is greater than they can possibly imagine. And you have somebody with all the power in their hands, able to do anything they want, who doesn't have to forgive. Nothing is making Christ forgive, except that we aren't saved if he doesn't. Nothing is holding a gun to his head, making him do this. So he is the greater, and he is forgiving a lesser. And in doing so, he is purchasing our salvation. Paul writes to the Romans, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely. Freely, that's a statement of God's intent. Uh, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood, by the unjust suffering he is suffering this night and morning, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So Jesus is undergoing unjust suffering. He is forgiving those who are doing this to him. He is letting them do it. He is eating the cost of it to buy us eternal salvation so that God can be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I mentioned it last week, but it's worth repeating C.S. Lewis is famous for when he was asked what makes the Christian religion different from all the others, he answered grace, but he's only right from a certain perspective. In all the world's religions, the concept of grace has to come up, because in all the world's religions, you have something that is perfect, superior, above man, if it's going to relate to man, it has to condescend to do it to some degree. And so if you ask a Jew about grace, he'll talk to you about grace. If you ask a Muslim about grace, he'll talk about grace. But what is different in Christianity is that God is both gracious and righteous. Because of the cross, because of Jesus's unjust suffering, God can be both perfectly righteous, holy, and good, and yet give us forgiveness, yet give us redemption. That's what Jesus is buying this night with his being willing to forgive. But he's doing it totally freely, to use Paul's language. He is the greater, the lesser are sinning against him, 
and he's buying forgiveness for lessers, which he doesn't have to do. All power is in his hand. The real temptation is when you don't have to do something. If there is a gun to your head and somebody tells you to do something, which is what it basically is when you have to forgive a greater, it's nowhere near as hard as when, honestly, I don't have to do this. And I don't want to. I don't feel a bit like doing this. That's when you're in the grip of real temptation, and that's where our Lord Christ was that night. He did not have to forgive us or the people abusing him. The greater forgave the lesser. And it cost him. During the Middle Ages, there was a tendency to focus on the sufferings of Christ, the the whippings, the beatings, the crown of thorns, the, the terrible events of the cross, to really meditate upon the sufferings, and it, it became kind of maudlin. It became really kind of overboard. But I would argue that if anything has happened in our modern age, we have gone to the other extreme, and we never really really consider what Christ paid that we might be redeemed. If you've ever read the book, The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis, you know that when you begin to truly delve into what Christ was willing to eat, what he was willing to take for our sake, what he was willing to, to, to not have what he deserved, <clears throat> It is beyond comprehension that the God of life should allow God the Son to die is a huge, huge writing off. God suffered that. Christ suffered that. A hundred denarii is a big price, but 10,000 talents is a debt you can't even comprehend. And God wrote that off. Last week, when preaching on being willing to be wronged, I felt odd. Because, to be honest, this is not something I do well at all. Uh, Forgiveness is not my fortitude. I wrestle with that. And yet, I'm preaching it because it's in the passage. I'm teaching you that Christ should be your example and should be mine. And that's true. Uh, But I just kind of got through it because, you know, when you're preaching on your own sins, it's kind of awkward. And then I felt God say, you should do this again. Because you haven't quite covered the topic. And I haven't. It is good when we follow Christ and we are sinned against by those more powerful than us, we forgive them. Uh, We say no to bitterness and we walk in his steps. But it is even more tempting to not forgive our child. It is more tempting to not forgive our coworker. It is more tempting to not forgive the person under us because we don't have to. Peter, when he says Christ has given us an example, 
he is pointing us to the totality of that night. And yes, as Christ was a man, he was a citizen of that kingdom. But as Christ was fully God, he was the greater. And the example is, it doesn't really matter if you have the power or not. You are being called to write off a debt you do deserve. But you are going to emulate your master. You do deserve it. You deserve to be respected. You deserve to be given what they didn't give you. You deserve your right. That's part of it. Christ deserved to be treated as the king of kings and lord of lords. And he wrote it off. It is challenging to forgive the greater. It is far, far more challenging to forgive the lesser. 